I know very well that if I don't speak my mind now, if the same as when I was five years old, if I would just say that, oh, what what harm would, would it cause if I would just wash the dishes every day and, and my brother would be playing? It's the same as many women now saying, what the harm if we let only men um, negotiate about peace? It's about you not being there. It's about your perspective not being there. It's about what you want not being there. And most importantly, it's about why would you let someone decide on your behalf? Women in settings of violent conflict are often thought of as passive victims, but in reality, women are very active. They're teachers, aid workers, peace builders, political activists, and sometimes even combatants with militias and violent extremist organizations. Women and the roles they play mirror the complexities of conflict. I'm Jillian Foster, and you're listening to the Women in Conflict podcast, stories directly from women living in conflict. This episode is brought to you by UN Women, the UN entity for gender equality and the empowerment of women. In this episode, I speak with Hajar Sharif, a woman who found her life changed forever after civil war swept Libya in February 2011. Amidst the unrest and still a young woman herself, Hajar spent months as a volunteer at her local hospital. By 18, Hajar witnessed the end of Libya's latest revolution and its transition to sectarian violence. In response, she started Together We Build It, an organization dedicated to empowering women as political actors and enhancing their role in Libya's peacebuilding process. Even as a child, Hajar was a rebel, pushing against expectations for her behavior as a girl in Libya. We, we are four siblings, but for a long time it was me and my oldest brother. And I always, I've never felt that I'm not equal to him. Um, like we grew up playing together. We grew up almost like sometimes even having the same toys. Like it's not that I, I want pinky stuff and he want blue stuff, you know. And everyone was treating us the same. But after I started to go to school, primary school, it was confusing to me um, because it's like outside of the house, there was those different like structural gender roles. For an example, that kids like girls should not play with boys football. You know, you should uh, just um, sit with the girls, uh, hold each other hands and sing songs or like do those stuff while like the boys are going wild and crazy. And then for me, it was like at home, I would go go wild with my brother and then my teachers at, at the school would say like oh you should not behave like a boy you know you should be nice and, and try to be as feminine as possible but then inside of the house like when it comes to who's going to clean the dishes who's going to uh, like do this or do that I would always say if I'm going to do it, then my brother needs to do it as well. And honestly, my, my parents were really supportive for that. Um, like my father would say, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Like you should clean up your dishes, for an example. In February 2011, when Hajar was still a teenager, her entire life was turned upside down as an Arab Spring-inspired revolution began in Libya. Libya has a complex history with sectarian violence, extremism, and dictatorship. The country declared independence from Italian colonizers in 1951. Muammar Gaddafi led a coup in 1969 and eventually ruled the country using his Green Book, which advocates for a system of direct democracy and a rejection of capitalism. Paradoxically, his government gained considerable wealth from oil sales in the 1970s, 
spending much of these profits on arms and the sponsorship of armed militias and their violent leaders like Charles Taylor of Liberia. By 2011, the Arab Spring spread to Libya and met a particularly resistant Gaddafi, who was captured and killed in October of that same year. And that was the time where things completely changed, you know. It was just one day we were at the university and then everyone went back home and things were right. But things started to happen like at night, around 3 a.m. in the morning. So I was in Tripoli at that time. And then the revolution really, like the first demonstration and protest that took place, it was in Benghazi. And that's like really far away from, from Tripoli. Only a few days later, the conflict spread to Hajar's home, with violent clashes between protesters and the military in the streets of Tripoli. And then it was it was just shocking to see, you know, like to see the same streets that you know, the same areas that you know, and then you see them on TV and you see people on in the streets. Like it was so obvious to see um, the re- the rise of military response, like seeing military men on the street. Um, and basically the police force as well, um, going to university and you really feel that you're not entering a university, you're entering like a, a military compound or something like that. And then that was the time where almost like the country really died. Um, like, for example, my university was closed. Um, we didn't even have like, we didn't have lectures, we didn't have our exams. Um, and then basically many of us have been sitting in the house for almost maybe five months, something like that, like literally not doing anything. Tripoli was under the control of the regime in itself. So there were like checkpoints everywhere. That city in particular was really dying because there were no gas for cars, for example. Um, There were electricity cuts for almost like 20 hours per day. Um, there was shortage of food, the prices got really high. It was really a process of sort of dehumanization, you know, like taking things away from people, like the very basic needs, just to show that, oh, if you want a revolution um, or if you want to change the system, this is what's going. Yeah, this is what you get. The internet was cut. Um, yeah, so basically we didn't have access to the like the outside world for almost six months were you scared at that time Mm, i would say yes and no um it was it was something new um it was it was a change that we wanted um and from the beginning we knew that it's going to be different in libya because of the nature of the regime maybe we didn't really expect it to turn to sort of a war um, and then continue as an armed conflict. But like when we saw the Tunisian revolution and the Egyptian revolution, um, there was some violence that took place, but but it's, it wasn't like Libya, for an example. And then things things got really escalated in terms of of how different groups suddenly adopted violence and, and it and it started to become like a sort of natural to the society in itself, you know. I think it was just a combination of a shock to the society because apart from the fights that was taking place on ground, there was also the airstrikes. I, I think we didn't really take the time to, to process what was really going on. Yeah. So after six months, then what happened? Like, what did you, did you just get sick of staying at home or what, what happened next? So I, I was living about 
10 minutes away from Gaddafi's compound. Um, and then at the end, when when the rebel, rebels started to get closer to, to Tripoli, um, even the airstrikes, they started to be focused on the compound in itself. And then what we called the Liberation War of Tripoli took place, which was like the the big fight that everyone was waiting for when the rebels will get to, to Tripoli, where where basically Gaddafi's compound is there, um, and it's the capital, so it also have different political values as well. And during that conflict in particular, I volunteered to work at Tripoli Central Hospital because I was a medicine student at that time, um, and there was a shortage, a shortage in the medical staff because due to the fights that was going on in the street, um, many people, doctors and nurses, um, they weren't able to get to the hospital. So then they had open calls for anyone with with any like simple medical background just to come in and volunteer. Like I was there for almost a month, but it was I mean honestly it was really shocking to see. I felt like as it was the first time I go to a hospital because you know, you go to a hospital before and then it's it's mainly everyone is sick. Um, but then this time when I went to the hospital, it was nearly that everyone is either shot, everyone is either in in a coma. Um, there was also there was also many injuries from I don't really know what's called in English, but you know when you have those, it's sort of a bums or something that is it's like buried in the ground. It can look like a hammer or it can look like something completely like a toy or something like that and and the problem is that there was there was so many of them on the streets um and then like from what i saw the majority of the injuries and like who who were affected by this were children because if it looks like a hammer in the street then then a kid might be interested in picking it up you know yeah so basically it was it was it felt so weird you know to uh it's it was like it was like a nightmare that 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 you are stuck in, but but like you can't really wake up from because it it doesn't really look normal, you know. But then in the same time, it was it's you know that suddenly started to become the reality. It's like you don't really know when it's going to end, and because you don't know when it's going to end, it's like you you start to adapt to that. Hajer volunteered at the hospital daily remaining hopeful that the end of the revolution would restore a sense of safety and calm to the country. To her surprise, the end of the revolution was simply the beginning of prolonged violence and disorder in Libya. From 2012 forward, the country has seen near constant instability between tribal unrest and an influx of violent jihadist groups, some of which claim allegiance to the Islamic State. I always had the perception that once like the last final war take place in Tripoli and then when the rebels will take over the capital, then the war will end. Um, and I was completely mistaken as much as uh, as the other people as well, um, thinking that wars can just end in a, in a simple way, you know. Um, and since my first day, I just realized that perhaps the war has just started actually because it's... It's like now there's there's a whole society that that doesn't know what to do. Um, absence of law and order, um, but then in the same time there is this 
there's this new phenomena that was added to the society, which is violence. Um, and what worried me the most at that time is that how how Libya started to look at violence as if it was something completely natural. Hajer felt compelled to help her country during this most pressing time of transition, but she wasn't sure where to start. An independent civil society was targeted and dissenting activists were silenced under the Gaddafi regime. Still, Hajer and a group of like-minded young people met to brainstorm just how they might build something new together. She remembers one meeting with a young graffiti artist where things started to take shape. And then we were sitting and we went through like thinking of who we are, um, what do we really want to do. We had the common vision, but we, we didn't have the capacity at that time, you know. And then we're, like, we kept talking and, and he was like just sketching on a paper. And then he came up with this idea of like having the Libyan map. And then we were like, no, but like we want to influence men to to like drop the weapons and start rebuilding the country. So he drew a man. Um, and then we were like, no, but it's not only about men; it's about women's contribution as well. And and it's like we that's we, we the, the country can't be rebuilt by by men, you know. And then he drew a woman. Um, and then um, someone else talked about. Um, people with disabilities so then he drew a person um, on, on a wheelchair and and then he just sketched the map as a puzzle and the end result it was like those three different categories were together like putting the puzzles on the Libyan map um, and then we were like oh then we can just call it together we build it um, so in Arabic it's ma'an ibniha and like the the translation in English is together we build it organization yeah and of course when we say we build it we we are talking about Libya because there's those group of people like rebuilding the the Libya um and then and then for us um when we first started and and again not knowing like we didn't really have any capacity um the first donor who who give us money um, at the organization it was my mother and I remember she gave us like an amount of uh, around like it's less than three hundred dollars um, and for us that was like a lot the first project we worked on um, it was an idea of of reconciliation for the society so we were thinking that okay the war happened, there were two sides, but then now it ended and it's it's about all of us living together and forgetting really what happened. So we thought about, like the initial idea was having something memorial. Um, and then we came up with an idea to propose it for the transition government at that time to adopt a national day, which we called the National Day for Marchers Missing and Wounded, because there was so many people who were missing during the war, um, were either kidnapped or arrested or even killed, and their families knows, knows nothing about. So we were thinking that it's important that the society start to, to heal again, you know, um, it was literally like a combination of project management, which we had no idea about. It was a, it needed fundraising, and we, I mean, we only had three hundred less than three hundred dollars, and it was like, 
where where do we start from and and who do we talk to we ended up with like going from three hundred dollars uh to uh organizing an event that cost more than fifty thousand dollars and it's like it's <laughs> it's like you cannot fundraise for that from the street you know or ask people to give you money so that was a very complicated process and overwhelming because you go to companies you go to people and you think that oh this is a really good idea they're just going to support it and then people will say oh good luck and then I remember Like one of the companies that we approached was like the national telecom company, and we wanted them to send like text messages to all of their subscriptions, yeah, to like as an outreach, um saying that well, this day is the day for like reconciliation and and like keep it in mind, et cetera, but then, at the same time, um I was telling nearly everyone about our idea, and so many people. afterwards admitted that at the beginning they thought that I was crazy um, and we were crazy the whole organization to think that say that oh we are talking to the national um, telecom company and and they're going to send these like messages they have around five billion um, people registered with them and I was like yeah they're going to send messages to five million people and everyone was thinking like oh good luck you know but then I think the most ironic part was that when those people received that text message yeah yeah and then I mean I got so many messages and phone calls after that and they were like are you kidding me like how did you all manage to do this and there was like an open invitation on Facebook on the TV channels and it was it was just insane I wouldn't say that we were naive but we we didn't really think we like we had the, the idea we believed that this is going to work out whether this one particular person or or company will support or not you know so then from after putting all of this together um we were like we we started from zero we didn't have anything um but it's like we we can't stop now you know it's it's like it was like an open door for us from working in a hospital to creating an organization to leading a movement that elevates the voices of women and young people Hajar continues to thrive in a context that requires a persistent patience. No one, no one really will, will like do t- sort of take your battle on your behalf. And you are the one who are dealing with those, like those stereotypes and um, the things that you really feel that sort of oppressing you. Because, I mean, growing up when I would say, no, I'm not going to do the dishes unless he does it with me. And then my father and my mother support that. Then it's like, at that time, that was like the high political debate in the house, you know. And I, I honestly, I mean, now me being an activist um, and especially promoting for women's rights, um, which for so many people in Libya is considered a sensitive topic. But it's a sensitive topic when I first started when I was 18. Um, and it's... It was the same sensitive topic when I was five years old saying that, oh, my brother should wash the dishes. I know very well that if I don't speak my mind now, if the same as when I was five years old, if I would just say that, oh, what 
what harm would would it cause if I would just wash the dishes every day and and my brother will be playing? It's the same as many women now saying, "What the harm if we let only men um, negotiate about peace?" It's, it's, but it's about you not being there. It's about your perspective not being there. It's about what you want not being there, and most importantly, it's about why would you let someone decide on your behalf? The same as you won't let someone decide on what you can eat for lunch today. For me, it's the same that I don't want a politician deciding on what a woman should wear or or what a woman should say or where women should be allowed to speak or not. I've been expressing my views as uh, as a person and mainly as a woman uh, since day one, I guess. <laughs> Since I was born and started crying out so loud, you know, and never stopped doing that. <laughs> I'm curious, like, have you ever been scared to, like, you're in a setting and you think, like, I need to say something? And what does that feel like? How do you decide if you say something? It's not that I decide whether I should say it or not. I, I'm very careful of how to say it. Because when when I first started um, working on women's rights, um, I was I was so driven in terms of like, sort of like, not trying to to open the door, but like just trying to to break a wall, you know, because it goes from this like, this you know like, personal belief that I don't need to argue with the man about and trying to convince him that I'm. I'm as equal as him, you know, um, or like, oh, I do have a brain and it's functioning, you know, like I feel this is so, I feel it really, it's sort of humiliating to me to do that. But then I realized that for the benefit of the cause, um, on a personal level, I still don't negotiate or argue, you know, like I, yeah, I wouldn't go and say, oh, would you please allow me to... Uh, to travel or to do this or to do that um, but that's like on a very personal matters but then when it comes to constructive issues as if I'm advocating with governments if I'm in, in a f- like in a meeting with government officials um, I I am so strategic in that because because I feel that I have a responsibility towards this issue I don't I don't really want to sort of burn it or make it backlash from the beginning because it's not only going to backlash on me, it's going to backlash on on the cause in itself. You won't convince, like if someone, if, if we look at peace negotiations, if women weren't included from the beginning, then one meeting, you going there, like screaming on the faces of those men, it's it's not going to help. Honestly, sometimes they say very silly stuff about women, you know, um, and about our role and about how we are, or like all of these comments and stereotypes that they have. But it's like, at the end, I just... Like I have this goal that I want to achieve, and and if again if those people didn't include women from the beginning, then one meeting won't solve it, and and one women's rights activist screaming on their faces it won't solve it. It will just make it much worse, you know. That's a really good point, right? And I think that's a really smart choice and path that you're taking. But it's hard not to be angry all the time, you know. 
Well, you should. I, I invite you to visit me at, at my house and then you can see how angry and, and loud I can be, especially if if I get like a 0.0001% that this has any gender background, you know. I think what's really important is that, especially at the critical time now the world is facing, um, and I really hope that those who are who have stable lives who have stable jobs who are living in very peaceful societies those who who can spend christmas with their families and the ones who who can have warm clothes um during like a very dark cold winter and i think for those people they should really know that when they look at the others um the ones who have it less it doesn't really necessarily means that it's their fault it's the others fault maybe they are lazy you know sometimes like if someone would look at libya they will just think that oh that's a violent country they brought it to themselves um why 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 would someone in the us think that i should help or support um refugees for an example or why should i care it's it's not my own issue um if i would give a one advice from from my experience as a libyan living the majority of my life in a peaceful society and then witnessing that peaceful society turns to a violent one um seeing how a movement that was supposed to be peaceful turned to more or less a bloody war my one advice is that don't take anything for granted because no one expected no one thought that things will turn out to be like this in libya and it's the same for any other country it's the same for any other society things can change things can happen and and it's basically they don't change by themselves it's not like you think this is a natural um um disaster you know it's not a hurricane or or fire forest it's it builds up on actions the world is really connected um the decisions that are being making taking here in the US are influencing the rest of the world as much as the decisions that are being taking in Europe is influencing all around the world and it's it's all the same and at the end what i would personally want from people as a support is that it's not about donating a couple of dollars or it's about being aware it's about being also responsible cuz we are all politicians um we might not be the ones passing bills um or making the laws but we are the ones who are bringing those people for example into politics and putting them in in that position and whatever decision they make it's it's part from our own decision we contributed to that so people should really be aware You can find out more about Hajer and the ways to support her organization, Together We Build It, at togetherwebuildit.org. This episode was edited by Jason Bro. Maggie Lemire is our consulting producer, and Isaac Kestenbaum is our executive producer. Our theme song is XXV by Broke for Free. I'm Jillian Foster, the founder and creator of the Women in Conflict Project. To hear more stories or to learn more about the project, visit womenincconflict.org This episode was supported in part by UN Women, the United Nations entity for gender equality and the empowerment of women.